Grace and peace to you from the one who is and who was and who is coming. Amen. Our text for our sermon is the gospel lesson as recorded by Luke in chapter 20, verses 27 through 38, which I will be reading throughout the sermon in in order. Brothers and sisters in Christ, how can we say that the visible church, which is made up of believers, will be triumphant? How can we say that when in the visible church there are unbelievers? How can we say that when so many visible congregations today do not do what we were told in our second lesson in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold on to the teachings that were passed along to you. See, the New Testament was being written. But ultimately, brothers and sisters in Christ, in the visible church of Christianity, there are two churches. There are those that hold tightly to the Word of God and those that don't. And those that don't, in one way or the other, always end up putting salvation in your hands in whatever degree. You do have to do something to contribute to your salvation. And it's just a matter of what percent you do and what percent Jesus did. How can the church be triumphant when its own do not even cling onto its very life, the Word of God? Even worse, as seen in the Reformation, as seen in the Inquisition, as seen during the Reformation when even the Reformed started using the law to force Lutherans to stand to their teachings that often were not in accord with Scriptures. How can the church be triumphant when its own are persecuting its own? The answer ultimately boils down to because the Lord is God and he is God for all eternity. Nothing will ever dethrone him. And so today, as we look at our text, we are going to see people who did not cling to the word of God and went against our Lord. And as a result, robbed themselves a lot of comfort. Our text begins at Luke chapter 20, verse 27. Now, some of the Sadducees who vehemently speak out against a resurrection approached and they put a question to Jesus. It's Holy Week, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's Tuesday. Remember, Jesus is going to be nailed to the cross Friday morning. And the Pharisees, they were saved by their holiness. They just kept coming to the Lord and coming at him. And you know what? They couldn't win. Jesus knew the scriptures as if he himself was the one who spoke them. Oh, that's right. He was. He's the word. Finally, the Sadducees stepped up to bat. Now, recall that the Sanhedrin, the ruling group that were in charge of making sure the people held to the word, they were made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. And most of your priests, including the high priest Caiaphas, were Sadducees. And we're told something about them. It's hard to translate into English who vehemently speak out against, and it doesn't say the resurrection. That would be you and I realizing there's going to be a time when we're going to be given our glorified bodies when Christ returns. They didn't just speak out against that. The Greek there is indefinite. They speak vehemently spoke against any kind of a resurrection. They were so smart, brothers and sisters in Christ, Oh, there are Christians and churches today who look back at God's word and they say, Oh, that's a bunch of myths from ignorant people 2,000 plus years ago. They don't know what they were talking about and they were such fools. You know, those people who think those things are fools themselves because the Sadducees, 
They had been infected by the popular Greek culture of their day. And since about 300 BC, they applied their logic and reason to the scriptures. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, logic and reason got confused when Adam and Eve fell into sin. It's a good device for us. But when we let logic and reason determine what scripture says, guess what? We're stepping away from the word of God. Lots of times faith is actually believing in something that's not logical, that's not reasonable. A virgin giving birth to a child who happens to be God? God hanging on the cross and being spit on and ridiculed, letting people think they're murdering him while he himself will give his life instead of coming with, as he said he could, with legions of angels? That defies logic. By faith, we see God's grace in that, in our salvation. So the Pharisees have failed, and boy, the great rationalists of their day, they're now going to come forward, and they have a great paradox. So here they go, verse 28, they posit the question, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if someone's brother were to die while having a wife, and if he were to die while being childless, that his brother should then take his wife and should raise up children for his brother. Accordingly, there were seven brothers, and the first one took a wife, and then he died childless. So the second took the first wife, and then he died childless. So the third brother took her, and the same thing occurred. Eventually, all seven also did not leave behind children, and they died. Then finally, the one wife of all seven brothers died. Therefore, that woman at the resurrection, for which of them does she become a wife? After all, all seven had her for a wife. They refer to what's recorded in Deuteronomy by Moses. And that law about if your brother dies childless, you take his wife. And the first child born to your union with her will be considered by adoption your brother's child. That was actually a very common custom just in that part of the world in the days that Abraham roamed the world. And and really up until after Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem. But when God set this up, there was a religious purpose for it. You see, when you believe in Jesus Christ, your baptism certificate is a property deed. God says, my child, you have just inherited land in heaven. It's yours. And so that law of inheritance for the promised land of Israel was to say this person still is significant. It actually already pointed to a resurrection and it pointed to a faith in the coming heaven, and it pointed also in the promised coming Savior, even if you weren't from the tribe of Judah, because you recognize God's promise to Adam and Eve, the woman's seed will crush the serpent's head. Now, men have the seed. It also recognized God's promise to Abraham, the father of the, of the Jewish nation, that his descendant, his seed, would be the Savior through whom the whole world was blessed. So passing that on, even if you weren't from the tribe of Judah, said, we know the Savior's coming and we're trusting in it. Now, they have such a clever argument, don't they? Ah, one brother dies. Eventually, the woman goes through all seven brothers. Now, I have to admit to you, if I was the fourth brother, I'd say, there's something wrong here. I am not made that poor woman. The argument itself is already illogical. But God is fair. God is just. Which wife would she be in the resurrection? Well, the obvious answer is the first, right? 
Well, is that fair to the other six brothers? What if one of them was married to her much longer? What if one of them actually grew to love her so much more? Is it fair that the other six, whoever you choose, gets robbed of a wife in the resurrection? And so the Sadducees' logical argument was, therefore there can't be a resurrection. Otherwise, God would be unfair and unjust in whoever the wife this woman becomes. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus immediately points out to them their flaw in thinking. Jesus tells them, the sons of this age, that would be this present world, marry and are given away in marriage, yet those who are considered completely worthy to obtain that age and the resurrection, that's the new heavens and the new earth, that's the glorified body. And why are they considered completely worthy to obtain it? Because God gave them faith and they clung to the object of that faith that Jesus had saved them. So that's what made them worthy. Specifically that resurrection from the dead. And here's the answer. Neither marry nor are given in marriage. And in fact, they are no longer able to die for they are like angels and they are sons of God because they are sons of the resurrection. They were applying this world's principles to another world, to a world with totally different principles. That was their problem. Jesus even says it's a Hebraism. They are sons of the resurrection. They, they're so closely united to that. Now remember, he's going to rise on Sunday. The Sadducees don't know this yet. And you, by faith, have been connected to Christ. So his resurrection is your resurrection. So you will rise and will be given that glorified body in a new heavens and a new earth where the principles of this world do not apply. So here's the problem, brothers and sisters in Christ. The Lord is the God for all eternity, and they thought they had a clever argument against the resurrection. And we can say, nah, the Lord's God for all eternity in spite of man's clever arguments. And believe me, this is, this is nothing new. When I was in college, I had a very good philosophy professor, and I wish I'd taken a few more classes from him when I went to the University of Wyoming. But he was explaining to us what paradoxes are. In the example he used, if God is so powerful and so strong, if he's almighty, why can't he create a rock that's so heavy that even he can't lift it? See the paradox there? And the answer to that is it's an absurdity. God created the laws of physics and the natural sciences that apply to this world. He created them. He's above them. And you're trying to shoehorn him in to the principles that he's above that he made. Now, how do Christians do this? Christians read in the word of God this wonderful meal God gave us in the Lord's Supper. And God said very clearly, this is my body, this is my blood. Oh, but that defies logic. They say, how can the finite bread and wine contain the infinite divine nature of Christ? Now, first of all, we don't say they contain it. We say it's there in a way we can't understand. But Jesus says, it is my body, it is my blood. Now, the irony is those who use that argument, that logic, they don't realize that you can apply the same logic to Jesus being true God and true man. Then how can true God be true man? Because man is finite with body, God is not. In fact, the answer there again is the logic they're applying they're applying to the principles of this world. And the basic logic is, if everybody in America participated of the, in the Lord's Supper on Sunday, we would eat thousands more pounds of wafers than would make up Jesus' body, so it can't be there. But Jesus is God. 
He created the principles. He spoke, let there be light. We've got to be careful, brothers and sisters in Christ. Logic can aid and assist us as we run to scriptures to understand things. But when logic dictates what scripture says, Satan's laughing his head off because he's just made us a slave to it. The Lord is God of all eternity. In spite of man's clever arguments, Jesus points out, you're applying principles to this world, to things they don't apply to. But he doesn't just lay out the dogmatic principles stating like the angels, they don't reproduce. There's just a certain number. Marriage was created, was created originally for companionship and children. And after the fall into sin, it also helped curve certain sinful behaviors. But brothers and sisters in Christ, we won't need to have any more children. There won't be people dying in heaven. And we'll be like the angels. The number is complete. And companionship we have, I have to admit, as far as humans go, the closest relationship I have with a human is with my wife. And yet, you and I will have a way better relationship with each other and everybody in heaven because there will be no sin to interfere. So that companionship of marriage will not be necessary in the new heavens and the new earth. Now Jesus applies, though, Scripture to the overall argument to verse 37. Now, regarding the fact that the dead are awakened, even Moses revealed it on the account of the thorn bush when he says, The Lord is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. When God appears to Moses in the burning bush, it's very important if you're an Israelite because the Israelites had been enslaved. Abraham had been dead for 400 years. And now he's picked his leader that said, you're going to go down to Egypt and I'm going to rescue them out of their slavery. And it's a side note. Jesus actually appeals to the Hebrew language itself. I am the God of Abraham. Isaac and Jacob, God says to Moses, and then inspires Moses to write it down. Brothers and sisters in Christ, here's the interesting thing, not to bore you with grammatical details. In English, we have past, present, future, perfect, pluperfect tenses, etc. Hebrew essentially has two. Completed action and ongoing or incompleted action. And if you're talking about a general principle like birds fly, you would use the completed action if you're talking about the fact that they land and take off again as a general principle, you would use the incompleted action. Here's the problem, though. The one that would stand out for what Jesus is saying is the perfect. But we often translate that as the past tense. So then it would be misunderstood as, I was the God of Abraham. Ah, but since Hebrew doesn't have the tense that we do, they have a way to get around this. You leave the verb out. Literally in the Hebrew, God says, I the God of Abraham. And when Hebrew leaves that verb out, it's a big equal sign, and it says this is a universal fact. In the inspired Greek, it's a present. The Lord continues being the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The Sadducees had outthought Scripture. They were so clever. And anything in the Scriptures, like in Isaiah, where the resurrection is clearly mentioned... We'll just get around that with our own clever interpretation. Jesus appeals to Moses, shows it right from his own words, because it was Jesus before he took on human flesh, the son talking from that burning bush. And the way he said it, dead ringer. It cannot be denied. How will the church be triumphant? Because the Lord is God for all eternity. He's our victor. He's God for all eternity in spite of man's supposedly clever arguments as proven by 
God's word. This is why we come to the word. This is why we're strengthened in it. Because this human's logic will constantly tell us, uh-uh. It'll constantly tell us God can't love you. And yet we turn, God can't forgive you. And we turn to the word and it says, no. No. Your God is your savior. He's your brother. And he's taken your sin away. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus wraps up his argument with verse 38. Now, he's not the God of the dead, but of those who are living. For all are alive in respect to him. There's two kinds of death in scripture. There's the physical death and there's the death of unbelief. In other words, if if you're alive, but you don't believe in the Lord, you're like a zombie. But if you die that way, then there's eternal death in the fires of hell. God's no longer their God. They didn't want anything to do with God. So he's finally said for them, fine, have it your way. I will not be your gracious God for all eternity. But Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Abraham's been dead for 400 years. He's still alive because God is not a God of the dead. He is the one and only true God and the God of the living. And it's very interesting. The very end, again, another grammatical point. Jesus says for all alive So how do we translate that dative word, him? Do we translate it as all are alive in him? All are alive because of him? All are alive by him? All are alive in respect to him? Meaning they might not be alive because their body's in the grave, but because God, they are alive before his throne because he is their God. I've often learned we want to have things in a nice, clear category. Sometimes logic, we can take verses of scripture and we can say, This verse rules out this understanding. This one rules out that one. But this one affirms this. Well, all those ones I gave you, they're alive in him. They're alive by him. They're alive in respect to him. All the scripture would say yes to all of those. So the answer is yes. You are alive in respect to God. Even though to your relatives, your body's in the grave. God will know if you die before his return. God will have you alive in, in respect to him, because you will be before his throne in heaven. Your soul will be. You will not cease to exist. But you're also alive in him. Right now you're alive in him because you are connected to Christ as a branch is to the vine. So you don't have eternal life in the future. You have it now because you have that new person in you that God has created. And you are alive by him. Because God the Father planned it out, as was pointed out in 2 Thessalonians when we were told that we were chosen by God. You are alive by Him because the Holy Spirit saw to it that the word of the good news of salvation was proclaimed to you and He entered your heart and gave you faith. And you are alive by Him because Christ died for you and rose for you. And His resurrection, because you're connected to Him, is your resurrection. And you can be confident your body will rise. Man's clever arguments, things like religion is fairy tales. You tell children so they can deal with grandma's death. They're foolish arguments, brothers and sisters in Christ. Even while many Christians will do like the Sadducees and ignore the word and not cling to it in truth and purity, the church will be triumphant because the Lord is our God and the Lord is God for all eternity. In spite of man's clever arguments, as proven by his word and seen in the fact that he owns death. He subjugated it and he uses it for your and my good. Amen. Now Christ will be with you all the way today, tomorrow, every day till traveling days are ended. Sing out, ring out, triumph glorious, O victorious, chosen nation, praise the God of your salvation. Amen.